Lonnie Bunch III is a historian and curator who now serves as the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. He was previously the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Today, he will discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Smithsonian Institution and the current racial turmoil in America. Let's listen in. Oh, thank you very much. Great to, great to be with you. And Alan, it's so amazing to me that a bad trip turned into a great friendship. So I really appreciate that very much. Um, and I very much appreciate having a chance to chat with you um, because I think that your notion of country over party is so important, especially at this time. I have to tell you, as Secretary of the Smithsonian, I didn't know what I was signing up on. The fact that we've got this sort of almost triple threat, a horrible economy, a virus that is killing, um, and then the impact of the murder of George Floyd has really led me to think very hard and carefully about what we can do and where we are as a country. On the one hand, as a historian, it's clear to me that this is a moment of possibility. There have been moments throughout our history where sort of opportunities and tragedy have come together and propelled the country forward. I think so much about 1954, 1955, the Brown versus Board education decision, and then a year later, the murder of Emmett Till from Chicago. And Emmett Till's death sort of reinvigorated the civil rights movement, and Brown versus Board gave them a North Star to shoot towards. And so in some ways, the question is, is this a moment that will push a country forward? And I think that the from where I sit, what's crucial to me is that I do believe for the first time, really, in 20, 30 years, that we've got people who are willing to cross party lines, cross racial lines, to look at what's possible in this nation. And I am, as a historian, I'm hopeful. Not sure I'm optimistic, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because I come from a community that believed in an America when an America didn't believe in them. I come from a community who believed that there could be a world where there was no slavery, who believed there would be a world where there was no legal segregation when the rest of the world said, it's hard to make those changes. So for me, coming out of that community, coming out of being a historian, I am always hopeful that change is possible. But again, I've been hopeful many other times in the past, and it's not, it's not always lived up to the fruition that I thought it would. How can we make it different this time? Well, I think you're seeing some things that give us hope. First of all, um, you're seeing a diverse array of people saying this is all of our problem, not just a black problem. Um, in most of the other movements historically, it's been overwhelmingly African-American with great allies, but it's really been sort of owned by the African-American community. And there's something powerful about seeing diverse people, not just in the United States, but around the world, saying that this is a moment that we have to do something different. I think that gives me great hope. What also gives me hope is that I'm seeing people who never stood up before to say change was needed. Police officers, some police chiefs. Um, you see corporate America saying more than just let me give a little money. Rather, corporate America is being challenged by its staff to say, what are you doing to help the country? 
but also how are you modeling the kind of behavior within your corporation? And I think that's leading to real change, not just checkbook change. And so I'm really sort of, I see that as being crucially important. I also see the real issue is whether or not everybody who is concerned, who is protesting, will actually go out and vote. Um, will actually say, I want to make sure my voice matters in ways that are concrete. And as I have spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks down with different crowds um, at different parts of the protest in Washington, D.C., and what's interesting is that overwhelmingly, a lot of people say, I'm not going to vote, that neither, neither party gives me what I believe. And I've always argued that not voting is really an insult to all those who fought for, who died, who struggled to ensure that the people have the right to vote. So it's, I'm at that point where I see things that are possible. Um, candidly, one of the biggest surprises, and I guess it's a little thing, but it's a big surprise to me, the fact that they're actually going to do away with Aunt Jemima, which has driven me crazy for 100 years, going to grocery stores and seeing Aunt Jemima. So all of that suggests to me that this might be a moment. But let me tell you the other side. The other side that concerns me is that if you look in the 1960s when there was profound change and also there was unrest in the streets, what you see happening is that you see the country turn more to law and order rather than racial justice. And that law and order led to larger numbers of mass incarceration and the like. And it turned the attention at a moment when there was energy and commitment to change, it turned that away. So I just worry a little bit that we might use the same language, um, paying more attention to looters than to the people that are actually trying to affect positive change. I worry a great deal about, does that short circuit what could be a moment of great transformation? You referred to Aunt Jemima, which, which leads to a broader question. There's obviously been a movement afoot whether it's tearing down statues, changing names of institutions. And we heard last weekend, Princeton has decided to change the name of one of its colleges and also change the name of its public policy center. So the Woodrow Wilson name will no longer you know, be there. Um, are those affirmative changes or are those changes that maybe have, you know, are an attempt to whitewash history? Well, I guess I'd, I'd look at it a little different. One of the things I think is crucially important is to have an honest history, a complete history. And often many of the Confederate statues are less, for example, about the Confederacy and more about attempts to maintain segregation or to celebrate white supremacy in the early 20th century. So for me, it's always about these monuments, though they're in stone and metal, I think were never meant to be permanent. And so I think it's important to think about how do you prune these monuments so that you can make the changes so that there's room for new people that you want to celebrate. Um, I think that the question really is, do you, are you erasing history? I believe that with the Confederate monuments, for example, you're correcting history. You're not erasing history because the Confederate monuments remind us that the South lost the Civil War, but they won the peace. Um, and so I think what's important to me is that 
I would never want to see all of these sculptures torn down, statues destroyed. I've worked with the mayor of uh, New Orleans, the mayor of Baltimore, to suggest that at least with, with Confederate statues, that if you take some down, they ought to be placed in a park, they ought to be placed in a warehouse, sometimes in a museum so they can be contextualized because the, what's most important about this moment is not the tearing down of statues, but the opening of conversation about actual history, about the difference between memory and history, between celebrating a heritage and celebrating a country's history. So for me, it's crucially important that we have those conversations and that we try to preserve some of these so that we can interpret them. And I think that in some ways, there are many places around the world that are models for us. You look at what they're doing in Budapest, in parts of India, they've pulled together statues that reflect a certain time in their history, brought them together and interpret them in a park. So people understand that they're shaped by that history, but they understand better what it really means. I think the broader question then is, how deep does this go, right? Is this something that goes all the way down to presidential names? Um, and that for me, Wilson is both a great international visionary president, but he's also somebody who basically resegregated the federal government. So for me, there's questions about why do you celebrate Woodrow Wilson? I think that um, I think that it's not enough just simply to say I will use the name of Win Woodrow Wilson and then we'll talk about how race plays out. I've suggested, however, to the Wilson Center that's um, in Washington D.C. that they might think about um, if they don't change their name, they might think about just making a major part of their work looking at how race and government interacted and interplayed throughout the years. So I'm torn because I don't want to erase history, but I sure would like people to understand that when you look at Thomas Jefferson, this is the man who wrote one of the most important documents in America, but he wrote that through the lens of slavery. You can't understand Jefferson's notion of liberty and freedom without understanding his notions of slavery. So I'm never saying erase Jefferson. I'm just saying, help us understand the fullness of Jefferson. In some ways, the real challenge of this is that good history helps people embrace ambiguity, helps people understand that it's complex, it's nuanced, that there are shades of gray, um, and that there aren't simple answers to complex questions, which often goes against an American mindset. So for me, if we could use this moment to help people think about nuance, think about complexity, um, think about ambiguity, then I think we're making a major contribution to this country in ways we can yet imagine, cannot yet imagine. I'm full of questions. I'm going to ask one more question, and then I, I see there are a number of, of questions among people on this call. My question is, is how can the Smithsonian play an important role in what you're talking about? I think in many ways, this is the moment for the Smithsonian to show how it's a value to the American public. And that's in several ways. On the one hand, when we talk about the virus itself, the pandemic, so much of the research about how animal viruses transfer to humans was done by the Smithsonian. So to make that information more available, but also the Smithsonian is a place that people trust. And one of the things that I think you know better than I 
is people talk to people who believe the same thing as they do, um, that they're in these bubbles. But the Smithsonian can bring people who cross different political and ethnic lines together, whether it's virtually or actually, to grapple with these issues. So I've created this initiative called Race, Community, and Our Shared um, Future, which really looks at how the Smithsonian could use its resources, its expertise to create virtual town halls around the country so people will feel comfortable grappling with these issues, how we can help the Smithsonian share its educational content around issues of race. So I really think that the Smithsonian has to do what it's done for 175 years, but maybe better. And that is to be a place that helps a country find understanding, insight, nuance, complexity, and maybe, just maybe, a little hope. Thank you. Uh, I know that Maxine Clark has a question. Uh, uh, Maxine? Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, your museum is an amazing place. I could spend weeks there if I had the time. Uh, I think that, and I agree with you about the trust of the Smithsonian. I'm on the board of PBS, and I feel that similarly, people trust PBS. And would there be an opportunity, um, because so many people have been complaining, I didn't know about um, Tulsa, I didn't know about this, I didn't know about that, to really reconstruct a whole history course for kindergarten through high school. Um, I've been trying to petition to get an African-American AP class, African-American history AP, because I believe that there's not enough time in AP history to teach kids about all this stuff, but they keep pushing me back on that. But I think if you you guys generated it, it could be really life-changing and authoritative and true, and we could all trust it, and then it wouldn't be questioned by Texas or some state that wants to invalidate it. I think that's really right on the mark. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to do with this initiative is to create a kind of not an online textbook, but a, but a learning a learning module that would give people at least an understanding of, you know, not just sort of African-American history, but an understanding of American history to an African-American lens, right? So that we understand where we've come together and the like. And I think that's really important because as you've pointed, initially, if you go to every district, you're not gonna be able to get through to all the different school districts. And But I think that the Smithsonian can be that place that rises above those lines and people pay attention to. So I will make sure that we continue to go down that road because it's a great idea. Partnering with PBS because they have so much live material, you know, so much video, so much Ken Burns material, so much uh, authoritative stuff that maybe there's a way, you know, in a, in a, I'm always looking for partners, but I think that that could be something that then people just can't turn it down because I'm tired of people saying, I didn't, I didn't know about the riots. Right. I live right. in St. Louis and we had the riots just a few years difference over in East St. Louis where right. they burned the whole town down. And people say, I never heard of that. Well, I've lived here 30 years. I've heard of it. And it was way right. before that. So I think it's sometimes the natives don't understand their own history. Those of us who come from another place might learn about it differently, but I don't know about Miami's history the way I know about St. Louis's history. Right. So I think well, that I think, there's really an opportunity there, big time. Well, I we are working already with PBS, and I have a conversation with Paula tomorrow um, to look at collaboration, because I agree with you. I think no one no longer has broad enough shoulders to do everything. 
And if you're a networked world, you can have the better, you have a greater ripple effect. So um, I want to make sure that we work with PBS and others who share this desire to help a country at a time when it's in crisis. Chris Spralek, I believe you have a question. I do. Uh, thanks for being here, Lonnie. And good to see you, Chris. My, I'm, uh, and I enjoyed you on uh, you were on Chris Wallace's show this weekend. You were oh. the power player, and it was great. That's pretty scary, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a trustee on, in a few museums, including the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, the Computer History Museum in Silicon Valley. And you touched on a little bit before, but I'd like to ask you to speak a little more about what you think the future of museums looks like, particularly mm -hmm. when they may not involve walking into a building. And uh, th this, this situation forces us all to think about that as all of our museums are closed as we speak. Very good question. What, what I've done is I put together a group, both of internal and external people, to help me think about what's the new normal for museums. Um, the reality is that only a foolish museum thinks they're going to go back to exactly the way it was. Um, I think that um, if you look at the way audiences are reacting, our numbers tell us, for example, that when I reopen parts of the Smithsonian, 25% of our visitors will come back right away. Another 25% will come back in six to eight weeks if there's no spike. But 50% won't show up until there's a vaccine. Um, so it really means we've got to think of new models, new revenue streams. And I think it's also important to realize that for the first time, I would argue more Americans are comfortable getting content digitally than ever before. And so therefore, really making sure that not that we see the digital as ancillary, but it's integrated importance to what we do. So I think that, you know, I look at the Smithsonian, we get 30 million visitors a year, but compared to the number of people in this country, that's pretty small. So part of what I think museums have to do is one, they're gonna have to find, think about new ways of understanding their audience because museums talk about that, but I don't think they really do. And especially now in light of this pandemic. Two, it's the digital, um, it's gonna be crucially important. Three, I think it's really important for museums to think of what's the ideas that demonstrate that they're helping a community, a country be better. Because people with resources have all lost money and people are looking for the big ideas. Show me that what you're doing traditionally is good, but show me what you're doing more. So I think this is an exciting time for museums, especially if museums recognize that they've got a greater responsibility than just doing good exhibitions and collecting. They've got a responsibility to figure out how do they, through their educational materials, through their expertise, how do they help a city, a region, a country be made better? So I, I agree this is a, the good museums are thinking about this as a way to reimagine themselves. The mediocre museums are thinking about how do I get through the next year? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Doug Scrivener, I believe you've got a, a question. Yes, thank you, Alan and Mr. Bunch. Thank you very much for uh, um, your insights. Um, Bob Johnson was on here um, a week or 10 days ago from BET, and he's been making the case for reparations. HR 40 has been around for a number of years under Congressman John, uh, John Conyers' uh, sponsorship and uh, Congresswoman Jackson Lee more, more recently. Um, just from a process perspective, your thoughts on 
how do we have that conversation, that discussion, that dialogue? What kinds of, you know, can the Smithsonian, other institutions play a role in that to, from an education and learning perspective, but also, a, you know, shining a light um how, how do we how do we just take on that whole set of issues your thoughts well you you you're now going to get a, a response from me that bob johnson doesn't like um you know my notion is that for me reparations are really not about giving resources to individual people or families for me it's saying how do we put resources to enrich and make educational opportunities for people of color um, more available. I look at the fact that I got through graduate school through special opportunity programs that are no longer there. I worry so much about the window being closed. So for me, reparations is really about committing resources to ensuring the educational opportunities for all our children. Um, and I think that the Smithsonian can be, and other cultural institutions can play a role in helping people understand why there's this need to put resources in this area. I think that it's always interesting for me that when I realize that people don't realize how all of us are shaped by slavery, regardless of where we're from, regardless of when our families came here. And when you look at the, in 1860, just before the war began, there was more money invested in slaves than in railroad, commerce, and business combined. It's the economic engine of a nation. Um, and so in some ways, we've all benefited from that unpaid labor. And so for me, paying that back by making sure the descendants of those enslaved people have the opportunities to get out of the inner cities, have an opportunity to get educated, that to me is what reparations are all about. Thank you. Uh, would you please share your thoughts on how we can keep the momentum for racial justice going and avoid what happened in the past, having it overtaken by cries for law and order. I think you put your finger on what is the biggest challenge we face. Um, on the one hand, though, what's different now is not so much, you know, young people out in the streets, because that's not sustainable. At a certain point, you know, you're just not in the streets. Um, but what is sustainable is this, the conversations that are going on in foundations and corporations, how to make sure that the conversation continues. What I think is clear is that there's a fundamental question of, I would argue that we need to have political leadership at all levels, local, state, national, that is really recognizing that this is their agenda. Um, that this is the moment to do that. I think that begins to keep it going. I think what you're going to see is what happened during the late 1960s. You're going to see more interest in African-American history. You're going to see, you know, more documentaries, more movies. More, and I think that's all for the good. But the key is that the goal in the late 1960s was, can we understand people who are different from us? The goal today ought to be, can we use that understanding to transform a system? Can we use that understanding to ensure that we're talking about fairness, just not books that are going to be put on a shelf that people won't read five years from now? Thank you. I, I believe Lynn Shank has a question. Lynn? 
huge. I, I'm with you. I am a techno uh, 19th century person. <laughs> I, I'm un unmuted. I was saying I'm quite moved by a lot of what you're saying and, and your thoughtfulness. Uh, many decades ago, when I was Nelson Rockefeller's White House fellow, he was a trustee of the Smithsonian, and he felt it was very important that I accompany him to the meetings to learn about this uh, remarkable aspect of, of Washington. And it's always stayed with me. Uh, I'm on the board of the History Center here in San Diego. And so much of what you're saying is, um, is, is valuable in terms of we're taking the stories out to the communities and we're taking them to the communities of color, uh, black and brown here. But my concern and, and wanted to hear more about your thoughts on the, the rush to eradicate or gloss over or change uh, history. You know, we're uh, men and women, we're all flawed. Washington, Jefferson, Wilson, all flawed, but what they contributed to make this moment uh, possible. Uh, how do we do that, really, uh, Lonnie? And is and and uh, again, uh, not to put to find a point on the role of the Smithsonian, but you also, you particularly as an individual and the Smithsonian, have a special place and a special opportunity to help lead that call about about balancing the education, especially with the children. I, I think you've put your finger on what I think my job is at the Smithsonian, which is at this moment to help this country where the Smithsonian can help it the best. And I think sometimes around these issues of race are really crucially important. And But also, as I talk to historians around the country, this is the moment for historians to make sure America understands a complex history, understands itself in a way. And I guess it's kind of what I was saying earlier, is that if we could help people not simply look for simple answers, then we can understand that you can celebrate a brilliant man like Woodrow Wilson, but you can also then point to and better understand the flaws. Um, and that in some ways, what you really want to see is you want the country to see that it's been always been a work in progress and that there is this sort of opportunity to always challenge to make it better. And what I've been struck by around these discussions around the monuments here in Washington, the big discussion now is around an Abraham Lincoln statue. Right? There is an amazing statue that was dedicated by Frederick Douglass um, shortly, a couple years after Lincoln was killed. And it's a statue of Lincoln basically freeing the slaves. And Lincoln standing over the slave, a slave that's on his knees, Lincoln's hand sort of is over his head, and basically his hand is breaking the chain, saying Lincoln set the slaves free. Well, that's the way we were all taught but it's a much more complicated story. So I've been arguing to the mayor and others, please don't take that down. Let us use that as a teaching moment to talk a little bit about sort of trying to understand that Lincoln had these amazing, he was a person of his era, but he also was a person ahead of his time. Um, that doesn't mean he was the person that should have been today, but we, we tend to use today's judgment looking back. So I'm trying very hard to help historians help the public just understand that the key to our success, I think, is understanding complexity. Howard Sherman, I believe you have a question. Yeah, Lonnie, thanks so much. I'm down here in the Deep South in the state of Mississippi where remarkably this weekend they took the flag down. 
Yeah. But but and there's really two states in this in this state because I ran for political office here. I got intimately familiar with it. In the black community, clearly the the issues that are coming up now are resonate resonate completely. But in the white community, what I worry about is what I'll call deal fatigue. Mm-hmm. So really, we are all overwhelmed with economic burdens and health burdens, and we're all locked in our homes. And yet at the same time, there's massive momentum in, in favor of, like I said, it resulted in the flag. I never would have bet that come down. The number mm-hmm. one thing I got asked Every radio station I went on that was a white conservative one was, Mr. Sherman, what are we going to do about the flag? So how do we avoid, at this point in time, get a little bit of dosing instead of like a sponge? There's so much water being poured on the sponge that there are people here who say, I know, but I'm freaking peddling for my life economically or health-wise or whatever. Well, I think that part of it is we've got to be clear in what we're trying to accomplish. Right now, it looks like we're trying to change the world, you know, everything racial. We're trying to sort of figure out new ways to live a virtual world, virtual life. And I think the challenge is for us to recognize what is it that we really want to see happening? What's possible? So therefore, we can point people's attention to that. Because I think right now, what's going to happen in my mind is that um, a year from now, we will have some very important successes, but we're also going to have fatigue. And the question in my mind is when you're fatigued, the most important thing is to know what your goal is. And right now, we don't have a clear goal of what we're trying to accomplish. It's not enough to say we need to deal with the police force. And when you say systematic racism, what does that really mean? How that's such a large area. So I think the challenge is to really find leadership that's going to make clear here's what we can accomplish, and that'll continue to get people to feel that they can focus their attention in that way. Richard Davis? Yes. Um, my question actually started out also related to what happened in Mississippi, and what was interesting to me about that was it seemed that it was college athletics that was a driving force, uh, and athletes, athletes saying, uh, well, the NCAA and FEC saying, no more events in Mississippi as long as that's there. At some athletes saying, I'm not going to stay at the school. How broad do you think the ability of athletes, you know, not just as their role model role, but in their role as people who play an important role in particular cities and locations can have in keeping this uh, progress going? I think that athletes traditionally have not been very engaged in the fight for fairness, whatever the issue is. Um, obviously, exactly, there are exceptions, right? Jesse Owens, the Black Power Olympics, et cetera. But I think that what you're finding now is more athletes getting their voice, finding their voice. And what I find fascinating is I was on some radio show and they you know, basically asked, shouldn't a professional athlete just play ball, you know, dribble and shut up kind of thing? And my notion is you're an athlete for only a short period of your life, but you're an American forever. And as such, you have an obligation to speak up to help change a country. So I think that athletics athletes is really crucially important to helping to transform the society because they've got this great platform. I think about you know my years in in college when one of the great changes of University of Alabama was when they played USC and Sam Cunningham ran all over them. 
and suddenly the Bear Bryant said, I need more black players. So <laughs> athletics has really been part of the transformation. And I don't expect all athletes to speak up, but I'm impressed to see some of the ones that are most visible um, taking a risk to say, let us change this nation. The next name I'm going to mispronounce, and I apologize in advance, Brian Onufrychuk. Uh, you, you nailed it, actually. Um, oh. Great. <laughs> um, Lonnie, thank you uh, so much for, for being here. It's really uh, interesting uh, discussion and perspective. Um, I was really struck by um, a comment you've made uh, earlier in the talk and, and a couple times throughout. So this is piling on kind of a theme that we've been discussing here about um, looking at statues, right, and considering them as, as teachable moments or, or opportunities to drive nuanced conversation. Uh, I live just outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia, um, and but I went to school, you know, not two hours south in Richmond, mm. um, uh, literally the center of the, the, the capital of the Confederacy. Um, you have Monument Avenue with uh, uh, Confederate generals up and down the street. You have Hollywood Cemetery, which with basically a... Um, uh, an altar to um, to Jefferson Davis, uh, the White House of the Confederacy. There, uh, a, a location like that that is just steeped in this um, this history that is so um, ripe with um, with with tension and conflict and and, and pain today. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know a statue here, a statue there is one thing. A city like Richmond, somebody mentioned you know previously you know state of Mississippi some of these places that it's just, it's so entwined with, with that location. Um, how do we, how do you see an opportunity to use that to drive conversation, um, understanding the pain that it causes, but, but really the opportunity that it gives us to look with eyes wide open and deal with that past that we have and turn it into a better future. I think, I think you've put your finger on the exact issue is suddenly I hear governor Northrop talk about, how do we use that Confederate street, whatever it's called, Monument Avenue, how do we use that as a moment to understand our history, to understand, because there are many people who don't understand the pain that those statues cause to many people in the community. So I see this as really a great opportunity. I'm impressed that Richmond is spending a lot of effort trying to recapture it's African-American past. There's a lot of work that's being done down in Chaco Bottom, I think it's called. And, um, and so I think all of that is for the good. What was crucial was to get political leadership to say, this is an important part of who we are and let's address that. I think that, you know, even if you tore down every statue in Richmond, Richmond would still be a Southern city shaped by the Confederacy. So unless you then use those statues as a way to sort of find a new Richmond, then you can be able to make the changes that I think we want. Otherwise, Richmond will, what you'll do is by simply pulling down the statues, what you'll do is harden the lines. Um, and I think if we can figure out ways to use those to see the Richmond Historical Society, even the Museum of the Confederacy, really helping to stimulate conversations, then I think you can make transform a transformative moment in a place like Richmond. Thanks. Uh, Ron Bergamini. Yes, uh, thank you, sir. This is sort of taking a, a handful of questions. I think Maxine Clark started with it and putting it together. So is this an opportunity to take the Smithsonian where the people on this call all seem to love it, including myself, but bringing it out to the rest of the country 
And in particular, I see my wife's a, a school teacher for a grammar school, and we really hope everyone goes back to school in September, but I'm not sure. And they're constantly searching for content. So can we try and make some lemonade out of these lemons here? I've used this to transform the Smithsonian already. Um, almost all of our educational content is now online. I created something called Smithsonian Cares, which was which was dedicated to K through 12 education to make sure our science, our history, our culture is available. Um, I've asked all the all the experts at the Smithsonian to do a five minute video for elementary school on the on black holes, a five minute video on the Civil War. So I think that's really part of what we're going to be doing in the future. Um, and that's going to be essential to what we do. I think the other piece of it is to recognize that what we have to do is to really do something that's hard for the Smithsonian, and that is to act like one Smithsonian. It's easy for individual museums to throw things out, but to really say, are there some portals that will allow you as a teacher to come into the Smithsonian? One of the things we've created is something with a horrible name called the Learning Lab. But what it is, is we've taken 3 million Smithsonian artifacts and we've allowed teachers to come in and create lesson plans based on them. So you can type Abraham Lincoln and learn every artifact the Smithsonian has about Lincoln. You can take it, it's all on open access, do what you want. And then what happens is then these teachers then take their lesson plans and share it with other teachers. So it's the ripple effect, so we don't have to do it all. So I expect us to be much more, as I've tried to explain to my colleagues, we are the world's greatest museum complex. We're a pretty good university when it comes to scholarship. What we really are, are a place of information and communication. And if we look at it through that lens, then it frees us up to try new techniques and to do new things. So you put your finger on where I want the Smithsonian to go. Thank you. Mike Cawley. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Lonnie Mike Cawley from Charlotte, North Carolina, as is Don Upton. Uh, we're a financial center here, some significance, and uh, we're very good at transferring financial capital. The thing that we're having a great deal of difficulty uh, with is transferring social capital to me is uh, much more effective uh, at solving some of these issues. And I wonder if there's any uh, magic that you've run across uh, on how uh, we in the, uh, uh, in the Caucasian community uh, can find ways to connect better, uh, with other parts of our society that we typically don't run into for purposes of transferring social capital. Thanks. I think that, you know, one of the things that strikes me in Charlotte, North Carolina is Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Right? Brian has said to me in no uncertain terms that this is a conversation that we can't let die and that he's really reached out to me and others to say who are collaborators that we don't normally work with that can allow us to affect change. And so I've been really impressed as I've been asked to give people lists of who are folks, where are people in the universities and in cultural institutions and in the educational institutions that are really ready to partner with the corporate community to begin to make those changes. And so I think they're out there. There are a lot of conversations I'm having with people on who some of those resources are. And I just think that the key for me is to recognize that, um, you know, you've got, I cannot remember the name, in, in Charlotte, there is a, a, a large African-American museum whose name has left me. Um, and they're okay 
but their connections in the community are deep. And that would be somebody I would talk to and I'll remember their name at some point. Thank you, Lonnie. Lonnie, uh, before I ask Bill Galston to close, I, I have one question for you, uh, considering the fact that this group is no labels and it's aimed towards working so, you know, to emphasize working across party lines. I know that during the process of the funding and the conceptualization of the museum, um, you worked with people on both sides of, you know, of the divide. Any pearls of wisdom as to how you brought people together, especially over difficult financial decisions and, and the politics you know, involved in that? Well, first of all, I learned so much about politics in Chicago, so that helped, <laughs> right? Um, but then what I also thought was, I knew that when I walked into a member of Congress's office, they saw this face and said, Democrat. I knew that. So that what I said is, how do I, who are the people that can bring me into Congress that will show that I am really sort of trying to craft something that is not a Democratic initiative or Republican initiative, but a quintessential American initiative. And so I actually sat down and had sort of Senator Durbin and Congressman John Porter, a Republican and a Democrat, sort of open doors for me and allow me to sort of go in and, and meet with people. It helped that I was able to get Senator Sam Brown back, who was, a, who was very different than me politically. Um, and that opened doors because he cared about what the museum was doing. So partly it was, um, as I said, every time Congress was in session, I spent two days on the Hill not asking for a thing other than shaking hands and saying, here's why this is a story all America must care for. And ultimately, we were able to get um, complete bipartisan support and raise a lot of money as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Bill, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Alan. And uh, on behalf of uh, No Labels, let me thank you, Mr. Bunch, for sharing your time and your insights with us. Uh, we need to hear a lot more from you, and I'm sure we will, uh, because this is a moment that, as you've said, calls on you as the leader of the Smithsonian to dig deeper and do more. Uh, but it's not just you. Uh, it calls on all of us to dig deeper and do more. Uh, as individuals, we all have institutional positions and relationships of one sort or another. Uh, and we have to challenge those institutions, including institutions in the private sector, uh, to do more than adjust cosmetically to the situation. Uh, it has to go deeper than that. It has to be more permanent than that. And that means it's going to be harder than that, more challenging than that. Uh, and as members of No Labels, we are doing our best to create a meeting place across party lines for doing the things that are difficult but necessary. Uh, and we're going to be, uh, some of us and our congressional and our con the people we deal with in Congress are going to be hearing from uh, Senator Scott later this week. Well, that, you know, and Senator Scott, I think, uh, symbolizes a place where the conversation may not be going so well. 
mm-hmm. right? There's work. There's obviously work to be done in dealing in dealing with policing in the United States. Will the Congress of the United States be able to get that work done now, or will it even make a meaningful first step, a start? We don't know. That's up for grabs. Yeah. Uh, and you know, this is a moment that can be seized. It also, I'm afraid, is a moment that can be lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we have a collective responsibility as individuals, as members of No Labels, to do our best to ensure that this moment is not lost. Uh, and uh, I know, uh, I I know that we are going to be working in Congress uh, to ensure that it isn't. But uh, we also have to take seriously our lives outside of No Labels as places where we can make a difference. I work at the Brookings Institution. And we are working very hard to change our institution. We have the right leadership to do that. Uh, but I think that, need, that needs to be nationwide. And we all have to ask ourselves, when we're being surprised by things that we should have known all along, whose fault is that? Whose responsibility is that to change it? Uh, whose responsibility is it that three weeks ago, I couldn't have given you two coherent sentences about what Juneteenth is, and I've been living in this country for 74 years. That tells me something about myself, and I suspect everybody in this call has had an experience like that. So uh, we're grateful for your leadership. Uh, You're grateful for your voice. Uh, We hope this won't be the last time we hear from you because we have all learned from you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I appreciate you so much having the opportunity. So take care, everybody. Thank you very much. Secretary Bunch is hopeful that this could be a moment of possibility, not unlike other times of unrest that have pushed America forward. For perhaps the first time, a diverse array of people are acknowledging racism as a universal problem, not just a black problem. But as a historian, he is worried about the effort to completely disregard the contributions of consequential figures like President Woodrow Wilson, who also embraced racist beliefs in their time. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.